People perceive Intel as a company that builds CPUs, but Intel is is really an amazing technology company that drives so much AI these days, drives autonomous cars, um, uh, drives changes in um, so many areas that Intel is is highly involved in, in security, in cyber, which most people don't realize. Hey guys, welcome to Startup Hand-Me-Downs, the podcast that passes insights from founders and thought leaders down to the next generation. I'm your host, Philip Kusumu, and thank you so much for giving me the next 30 minutes of your time. I promise it'll be worth it. So today I had the pleasure of interviewing Zach Weisfeld, who is a seasoned executive and serial entrepreneur with over 25 years of experience in both the tech consumer and enterprise markets. Zach is currently the general manager and head of Ignite, which is Intel's startup mentorship program. He's also the president of ASN, Accelerating Startup Nations. Zach was one of the founders of Microsoft's Israel R&D site, as well as a member of its management team for over eight years, where he created Microsoft for Startups, which has gone on to be one of the most successful programs in the world. This was a great episode as me and Zach discussed the role of entrepreneurship within multinationals and how they can bridge the gap between corporate and the startup world so startups stop stealing their lunch money. We also discuss the impact of COVID-19 on the startup ecosystem as well as building a program such as Ignite remotely. All right, let's jump into the episode. So Zach, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Sure, happy to be here. Thank you very much for having me. So, Zach, when you are out and about, or historically out and about, um, how did you introduce yourself to people at a you know a social event or a, a WeWork event? So, I'm I'm an entrepreneur. I've always been an entrepreneur um, since since a child. Um, you know, building new new stuff, and um, I happen also to be a corporate entrepreneur. Um, uh, worked for many years at Microsoft, now at Intel, and and bringing that culture into these organizations. Yeah, I mean, yeah, just before the before we started interviewing, uh, we were having a discussion around like entrepreneurship, which has always been a really fascinating area for me. So I'd love to, can't wait to kind of delve into that and, and hear your thoughts on the pros and cons of that. Um, but before we get into kind of Intel and Microsoft, um, I always like to start at the beginning. So, so what did Zach do in the beginning? Like, where did you grow up? Um, how did you get involved in tech and entrepreneurship? And kind of like, what kind of triggered that within you when you knew you were going to be a, an entrepreneur? Sure. So um, I'm a child for two immigrants, you know, came after World War II. Um, uh, my mother went through the horrible, horrible childhood that you can, you know, there are early movies, you can see what she went through. Um, and my father, they fled to Siberia when the war started and then they moved back to Germany and uh, to Poland, sorry, and, and, and to Israel. So they started here with nothing and they, they moved back, they moved to Israel with uh, nothing. And then my mother started nursing school and then taught nursing and won the president award for her achievements in the, in the field. And my father started a small business, which eventually was very successful and, both ta- taught me uh, uh, giving, being super, super optimistic. Nothing can stop you. And, um, um, and entrepreneurship, you know, building things from nothing, having a dream and making it uh, reality. So that was a critical piece of, you know, when 
the piece of learning I got from my parents when uh, when I started. And I think my first first uh, well, I look myself like as a geek. I was a geek kid. I had a Commodore sixty four and eight bit computer at the time. I had later on when the um, IBM compatibles came came in. I had one of the early ones here in Israel, and and I thought all the world is gonna be is gonna speak basic. Um, which is kind of funny, but um, I also started doing some uh, early business. So at age eight, I started a small business of of um, uh, um, um, doing these commercial uh, or um, advertising products uh, and helping people sell their business. So I was I'll buy stuff, I'll uh, go and do a shrink pack for them. I'll I used I thought that the most amazing technology was a copy machine that could uh, uh, do. Uh, enlarge and make smaller logos and I could uh, stick them on the product. So, and, and I did a few things since, uh, since, uh, since then clear. So this is how I started. And I looked both at, at technology and business and actually picked business as, as my major and where uh, I wanted to make an impact on the world. So that's, that's how I started. Wow. That's a kind of interesting uh, journey in the beginning and, and, and tech, you know, you know, was there any reason why you chose tech over yeah. anything else? So uh, my, my professional life started at management consulting. And right after school, I went to uh, uh, the top management consulting firm here. At, uh, and from there, I was uh, um, headhunted for um, um, an ad agency. J. Walter Thompson in Israel wanted to build strategic planning. Um, and they also wanted to start a very strong um tech um, presence. So they built one of probably the first digital agencies in the country. It was called NetKing. Uh, we built the first websites. So it's early 90s, first websites of the largest uh, uh, operations here in Israel. Um, so I was asked, to, so I was age 23, I was asked to come in and, and be CEO of that uh, digital agency and uh, uh, brought DoubleClick for the first time to Israel. Did a lot of first, my, my first uh, um, entry to technology at the time, which was again early, early days of the internet. Um, and then um, one of my customers were Microsoft. And Microsoft asked me to join Microsoft at the time and uh, mid-90s to start MSN in Israel. Um, and that was a funny, a funny journey because I joined Microsoft and immediately we got, uh, and that's, that was Microsoft Israel, and we got a response from Redmond saying, guys, not going to happen. We're not going to open MSN in Israel. We're doing France, UK, Germany. Israel is not on that list. And as I wow. told you, I'm, I'm an entrepreneur. That's the way I define myself. And I said, okay, guys, no problem. I flew to Redmond. They said, the only thing I'm asking from you is the domains and the redirects and the internet. I'll bring the money. I'll bring the technology. I'll bring the, the distribution. You, you don't need to worry about that. Came back, signed a, um, a joint venture with the second largest ISP in the country, they were traded in NASDAQ. They quadrupled their, their stock when they announced they have 51% of the joint, uh, uh, joint uh, uh, venture MSN here in Israel. Um, and that was a fun journey. Then I felt that um, internet is happening, but not here. It's happening in, in the US. So mm -hmm. I packed my six-month-old son, Roy, and, and my uh, beautiful and great partner and wife, Sharon, and we moved to Mountain View. And I joined uh, one of the darling.com companies of Israel, uh, at the time called Comtouch. We had 40 million consumer mailboxes uh, for company for sites like about.com, for Hotmail in, 
in tough languages like Arabic, Hebrew, Thai. Um, and I joined uh, Comtech as uh, heading their enterprise business. Um, so I built, I had R&D and product in Israel. I had sales, marketing, and service in the Valley. And uh, again, amazing dot-com days. Everything looked so amazing and we grew super fast. Um, but then, uh, of course, as, as we all know the story, the bust came and, and the bubble burst. And we sold my business in 2002 and I joined another tech company and another Israeli tech company that went extremely well at the time called M systems M systems invented the USB flash drive and a lot of uh, flash memory products. Um, and I originally joined as VP strategy and marketing for the mobile market. And then fairly quickly, I was asked to turn around the U S operations, took it, grew it from 15 to $130 million in a couple of years. Um, uh, moved location, hired new teams, um, uh, did a whole turnaround for that business. Then I got another call from Microsoft to rejoin Microsoft when we were building the R&D site in Israel. I was asked to move to Redmond, Washington from the Valley uh, to run the relationship with Steve Ballmer and Robbie Bach. Robbie used to run entertainment and devices for, for Microsoft and the site in Israel reported to, uh, to Robbie. So, um, my boss, Moshe Lichtman moved from the, from, uh, Redmond after 17 years to Israel. And we started Microsoft R and D site here in Israel. Um, all in all eight years in the U S moved back to Tel Aviv, joined another startup, uh, called Modu. We raised $120 million and tried to reinvent the mobile handset world the same year that Apple came out with iPhone. So we created this modular phone, um, beautiful piece of hardware. Then we won the Guinness world record for the smallest phone in the world, uh, twice in a row, because we had a touch phone later on. Um, and, uh, we got a lot of operators excited. So T-Mobile and, and, uh, Bouygues Telecom in France and others that flying over here, landing in Israel, offering us hundreds of millions of euros or dollars to be exclusive with the product. But again, as I said, iPhone happened at the same time. We were, because we picked as such a small hardware uh, configuration, we were challenged with the kind of CPU we could have had there. And, and again, it's, it's a conversation. It's a much, much longer conversation with the time we have right now. Eventually sold IP to Google for close to nothing. Um, and then together with two other VPs there, we started another startup called Mintigo, uh, doing marketing intelligence. We raised... Um, one and a half million dollars in less than 14 hours since we started. And, wow. uh, so that was the seed. And then Sequoia came in about four months and just sold that company not too long ago to, uh, on a plan. Yeah. Um, so just jump in there and, uh, you know, cause you, you said a lot of things, uh, you know, each one of those stories is a, is a subheading and a, could be a whole other podcast within itself. Um, so talk me to talk me through the process of why you ended up selling that business to Google for nothing, the IP for that, because it sounded as though, you know, that business could have been printing its own money. Um, why, why did it end up only selling? Yeah. So I left the company before we, before it uh, went uh, uh, that uh, far and sold to, to Google. We've, we've had a bunch of challenges. Uh, um, mostly technology challenges. I think we've, we got the market really, really excited because of the form factor. We had to use a processor and a modem that were only what people call two and a half G or edge. 
and the market was already waiting for 3G devices and wanted Android, and we couldn't run Android, and we didn't have 3G on the phone. So we got a lot of people excited about the phone factor and about the use case, but um, but we couldn't deliver. And by the time we could deliver an Android device and in a 3G platform, it was too late. Um, um, it's it's super super expensive to build um, uh, hardware and to build phone hardware and and to get it to market. So that was an unfortunate um, uh, case. Uh, um, the founder and CEO of of uh, Modu, same founder CEO of M Systems, Dov Moran, a brilliant guy, um, and um, we've um, decided eventually that uh, we couldn't raise the, the idea was was to actually IPO the company, but when it, when we saw that it's not going to happen, the the most the smartest thing to do was to sell the IP for whatever people would be willing to pay for it, and and get out of the business. Got it. Makes sense. And so when you when you left that business and you you went to go and start uh, Mintico, is that correct? Yeah. Um, which you know I saw was you know funded by Sequoia um, Israel, um, many rounds. Um, eventually sold last year. So what did that company do, um, and how did that idea come about? Um, and who you started with? You mentioned we. Did you use the same team that you were using on previous projects, or was this kind of a new so, project? Yeah, so we, we've been we had four founders uh, all uh, all together. Two other founders uh, uh, worked with me at Modu, and uh, we're both uh, uh, coming from a, a pedigree of super strong technology. You know, these uh, um, unique Israeli army units with intelligence and and super strong technology of finding data where no one else knows how to find that data. And what we've done at the beginning, uh, it was, uh, we were a marketing um, intelligence company. Uh, we looked at markets like uh, mobile operators, like banking, that there are a limited number of players and basically every player in the market can see through their data, all the transactions in the market. So if you think of a mobile operator, usually there are three to five major operators. Each one of these mobile operators sees all the traffic in the market because people speak with each other, right, throughout through networks. So if you know how to read in the data, um, uh, again, like no others, you would know, who, especially about competitor customers, um, you know, how much uh, money do they spend? Um, who are they related to? Do they travel a lot? Uh, and then eventually you would know when they're ready to move to a new operator. So the times, um, talking about 10 years ago, people were locked into contracts for a long time, usually. And we would be able to give a good prediction on who's ready to churn from their, from a competitor. And they're very close to what their, um, average return looks like. So we gave mobile operators, uh, basically, um, numbers of um, uh, potential customers that drive something like four times the average return that they drive on their network. And what we also told them when they're ready to move and what's the best way to approach them. And that was super successful for that time. But there was a limit to how much how much we could grow in that business. Um, then, uh, a uh, couple of pivots later, the company did mostly, uh, predictive marketing right. and, and did really well. 
um, on that side. But these, but when we got to these pivots, I was already uh, back at Microsoft on my next uh, uh, next journey, um, helping drive acquisitions and connecting Microsoft to startups. Right. And did you feel as though? I guess you mentioned a few like pivots and you know challenges. Um, do you think that that you guys might have been doing things before it's time, or was the market not just ready for what you guys were trying to build? Um, I don't think it was ahead of time. I think it was, um, it was some of these marketers markets are, are tough and you see a lot of competitors in the same spaces that none of them grew. Like we thought we or them will grow. It's, it's, you know, you find out you, you have this dream, right? When you start a startup and you have all these, um, uh, business models or, or Excel sheets that shows how much revenues you can drive. And you have this early demand and feedback from customers. It seems like this is, you know, no brainer. Everyone is going to buy this. And, 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 and then you go to market and you figure out there's a competition. There are some challenges you need to change and you need to pivot appropriately and you need to do it in time. And, and in many cases, at the end of the day, the business is not big enough. And that's, that's a reality with, uh, with many startups and many, you know, venture backed businesses. And, and, uh, this is why VCs usually have few home runs and most of companies that they fund are not, uh, are not getting there. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to switch gears now and, and talk a little bit about, you know, Intel and the program and the great work you're doing there. I mean, obviously you spoke about your, you know, the, the times that you've gone back and forth to Microsoft and, you know, helping grow their Microsoft for startups. Um, which is actually a really great program. And, you know, I've been in touch with Microsoft for Startups in the UK, um, also sure. in New York, and it's, and it's huge. Yep. Um, and um, I guess you were quite integral to the growth of that as well, right? Yeah, and that was interesting. The journey there started. So I, I rejoined Microsoft, then I was asked to come and help do acquisitions and, and uh, connect Microsoft to startup ecosystems. So this is 2011, 2010, 2011. Microsoft was persona non grata in the, in the startup uh, world. No one wanted to work with Microsoft. And um, so after I joined, I said, look, the problem is not Israel. The problem is global. And I was walking around with a blog post of Paul Graham, the founder of Y Combinator, in, still in his private blog, there's a blog post that he wrote that the title was Microsoft is dead. And he said three things. He said, Microsoft is dead. Microsoft used to shed a big shadow in the tech world. Haven't realized when the shadow disappeared. And the third thing he said, I don't invite them anymore to my demo days. And if you're not invited to a YC demo day, you're, you're, you're out, right? You're not there where things like Airbnb and Dropbox and others are being um, established. So I went to meet with Satya. Satya was the, we reported to Satya. He was the head of our server and tool division. And I said, Satya, I want to reinvent the way we deal with entrepreneurs. And I got permission to start an accelerator in Tel Aviv as a pilot. So I met with Satya November 11, April 12, we started the accelerator. In June, we already started Bangalore and Beijing. So I did uh, Tel Aviv, Bangalore, Beijing, Shanghai, Berlin, London, uh, Paris, Seattle, and eventually Sydney. Um, 800 startups, they raised uh, a bit over $5 billion, 100 exits, 10 IPOs. So the wow. program did extremely well. We got awarded as the number one ecosystem builder in India by Fortune. Uh, we were the number one program in China, six years in a row, the number one program in Tel Aviv, super, super um, tight markets. And I think we've done, we've built a very unique blueprint. And, uh, and eventually I, I managed all of Microsoft for startups, uh, 110 countries. And then I retired the, the mid 2018. I said, enough, I haven't seen my kids three kids, three amazing kids, and I haven't seen them for too many years. 
um, and did some some uh, consulting for Google in some countries. And um, and then Intel called. So at the end of 2018, Bob Swan, new CEO, was visiting Israel together with the management team. And um, they met here with a variety of people, with the head of Air Force, with the head of our um, NSA, with uh, the country leads. And he asked himself, are we getting enough with what we do with startups? It was a, it's, a, it's a weird question, right? Because Intel has an amazing corporate investment fund, one probably one of the best and most active corporate funds in the world, Intel Capital. Um, yeah. it's, it acquires company in a significant way. So even here in Israel, just in the past couple of years, um, and Mobileye for about $16 billion, uh, Habana Labs for a couple of billion dollars in cash, and Movit just lately for a billion dollars. So it's, it's very active. But on the other hand, feeling that Bob had and a lot of management had is, do they get enough learning from these, from this, uh, um, from working with the startup? So I was asked to come in and help build a program that will connect Intel in a much significant way, in a much better way to startups. You can't afford anymore today as a large tech corporate to be in a world where you throw your hat 15 years ahead and say, I'll tell you how a CPU is going to look like. I'm going to tell you how a GPU is going to look like. The world is changing much faster. The disruptors are out there and you want to be closer as possible to them. So, um, and, and the second thing is uh, Bob has also done an, a tremendous job in, in creating new kind of values for the company. And, yeah. and by trying to get people to be more nimble than they are, by being open for change, by accepting what's happening in the outside world, he was looking for more um, opportunities to get people to exercise these new values. And this is where Ignite comes in. Um, so, we, so Bob was, was announced in, in uh, June 2019, announced Ignite as a global program, starting in, in Tel Aviv. Uh, we just finished our second batch. It's a super, super intensive program. It's a 12 weeks program. We call it the um, Intel, Intel for Startups. It's the Intel Starter Growth Program. Yep. And we take companies at um, seed to A, so pre-A. Um, and we work with them for 12 weeks, about two days a week, which again, as I said, super intensive on variety of variety of areas. Um, it's a very uh, mentor-heavy program. So we use industry mentors. Some of the best serial entrepreneurs of, uh, of the country here comes and work for no equity and no pay. We don't take equity. We don't take pay from these companies. Um, so they have industry mentors uh, on a weekly basis. They have Intel, both business and technology mentors um, uh, on a weekly basis. Uh, we do workshops and we use some of the best talent in the world to do these, these workshops. So we work, for example, with a company called Virtuoso, one of the four companies in the world are licensed to do, to prepare TED speakers. So they work with the startups on a weekly basis on their narrative, on their story. Uh, uh, we work with them on go to market and sales and, and marketing and governance. Then we have something called founder circle. So every week they meet for two hours for a very intimate conversation, serial entrepreneur. Uh, and, and they also spend time with me, my team, and we get very, very intimate with them to, uh, founder challenges, fa uh, investor challenges, how to increase and, and maximize the value of their next funding round, um, um, customer challenges, et cetera. And, and especially these days where reality is new for everyone. So you need as much help and advice you can get to get through this new period that we're in. And I mean, look, there's so much that you that you said there that I would love to kind of unpack. So 
you know, the numbers that you were, you were saying with regards to, you know, going back to Microsoft, the startups and the kind of returns, and obviously now trying to, I guess, replicate, if not bigger, uh, that type of success for, for yeah. Intel. What have you seen to be kind of like the reason for that? Like what historically were the likes of Microsoft and Intel missing um, that you were able to kind of establish um, and kind of like produce yeah. a model where you could work with so, so if you look through, I think Satya has done tremendous work at, at, uh, with Microsoft, right? An unbelievable change with the company. And if you look and if you, if you listen, if you read his book, if you listen to, uh, to what he tells about that journey, it was mostly about this growth mindset approach, which he brought, brought from Stanford. And, and um, bringing that growth mindset, you should stop. Uh, um, you should really, you should stop thinking about things you've done in the past and learn new stuff and unlearn stuff that you should stop uh, uh, doing and and be open. The whole open source phenomenon in, at Microsoft um, it, it was a new um, new days, right? With this growth mindset approach, Intel very similarly gets got the same understanding. When I got into Intel, I I met a bunch of super super smart people. They're probably the best in the world at what they do. So uh, um, they they know the hardware extremely well. Um, and you know, so again, super smart people, highly dedicated, but super narrow in many cases. They know what they know and, and they know it very well, but the world is changing and they need to know new stuff. They need to see new stuff. And because they've been doing it for 15, 20, 25 years, it's not as easy to move them and excite them and, and get them to see new stuff. So um, this, these programs, as I think as Satya has been looking at, at my program at Microsoft and called it often, this is growth mindset in action. Go and see Zach's programs, growth mindset in action. Similarly in, in Intel, we like to look at, at Ignite as, as that, um, uh, we call it Intel fearless mindset in action or how you, how are you customer obsessed about these startups and their success and how do you help them uh, to be a great success in market and technology? So we bring a lot of people from inside Intel to do this work with startups. And again, brilliant, brilliant people that adds tons of value for early stage startups. And um, can you can you let me know what are, and obviously I think you mentioned earlier about that, this is a zero equity, uh, zero investment upfront for these programs, right? And I think that's actually quite, that was the same at Microsoft as well. Correct. 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 No equity. Um, no investment, but it's a 12-week intensive program. So how does that work? Because, you know, me personally being a startup founder historically, um, you know, money is the currency that we need, right? Yeah. And yeah. Advice is useful, time is useful, introductions are useful, but sometimes you just need capital. So yeah. how do you kind of simplify the, the program and, that, and how yeah. does that work? Has, has that been a challenge that you've seen over the years? So I thought it'd be, it's going to be a challenge at the beginning because I didn't have an investment vehicle and it was a challenging to build that investment vehicle at the beginning. But I figured out that actually a non-equity program is a much better program. Why? Because it gets the best startups to come and engage with you. The challenge you have when you, when you want to invest, you know, $100,000, $200,000 in a bunch of startups and get some equity, the best ones are not going to come. They have lots of more opportunities in the market and people are happily investing in them. If you look at the, the, the batch we've just finished, the average funding was five and a half million dollars. The median was about 4.3. These are real companies and it, and they raise money 
it's, it's not that hard for them to raise money because they have an amazing idea and they're an amazing team. So having Intel on their cap table may not be the biggest thing for them, but also for Intel to end up with hundreds of small equity parts in startups, it's also not a significant thing for Intel. So the model that I've built throughout the years is a model that says it's actually much better for everyone engaged, the startups, as well as for the corporate not to have the equity as part of the, of the engagement, it actually creates better outcomes. Um, and, and because we built that program and convinced the VCs in the market that this adds significant amount of value to their portfolio companies, um, we get referrals of amazing companies to come and join our program. Um, uh, we had in this batch that we just finished, you know, companies that raised 10 million, 11 million in Microsoft, we had companies that raised tens of millions of dollars. And I think all of them in the exit interviews and the NPS polls we did said that they were completely transformed. Um, wow. so, uh, the other thing is, you know, people ask me, how, how do you get to eventually do POCs in such a short time with a company like Intel? It's not something that we optimize for doing POCs, in, which for every, every startup, the best thing they want is to, to have Intel or Microsoft as a customer. But we do yeah. it in a different way. We, we tend to bring them into the organization as advice. We say, look, we don't want, don't, they're not selling. They're not pitching you to buy. We just need your advice. Come and give them advice. Be open. Tell them what you think. In many cases, that conversation ends what, you know what? I have an interesting thing here for you. You may want to come and, and, and install or implement here. Let's figure out if we want to do an, a POC internally. But it's very different than you come in and say, look, I have a technology I want you to buy. Usually the case is, look, I'm not buying right now. I have something else. I'm not interested. It, we found out that it's a much, much more effective way to get these things going. And because it's a, it's a, it's a company program, it's a, it's a CEO sponsored program. Um, many people love to engage and this yeah. is how we get, uh, even these POCs wins that, uh, are usually very hard to get by. And for those who don't know what POC is, can you explain? Sorry, a proof of concept. So basically getting, getting, um, uh, Intel and before Microsoft, but Intel as a customer. Right. And, and uh, that's always hard to get the large, large corporations. And if you look at uh, a lot large companies to be customers, and if you look at these days of, of Corona days, which is so hard to get now in front of new customers and hard to yeah. get into uh, installs okay. and, and get in front of uh, people, we operate with Ignite uh, here in Israel, where there's 13,000 people of Intel there large sites of Intel here, and we're going to operate in uh, additional places in the upcoming year. And all of these locations have significant Intel sites. So uh, we bring Intel in with us and we try to bring as much of the companies into Intel as well. That's awesome. And with, I guess, what have you seen to be kind of like the biggest assumptions or the most common type of assumptions that startups come to Intel with that you have to kind of change or shift. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting when we started this. So I was a consulting at the beginning where when, when Bob was here and after, after he left and they asked me to come and see how to connect Intel with startups. And I started with a survey. We went and, and surveyed a few hundred startups. And the interesting thing is almost none of them said Intel is relevant, which we thought relevant to most of them. And the reason mm. so was people perceive Intel as a company that builds CPUs. 
right? Or to, to even to the extreme that people think Intel is the company that does these stickers on top of the laptop. So Intel <laughs> do CPUs, right, for laptops, for servers. Um, but Intel is is really an amazing technology company that drives so much AI these days, um, drives autonomous cars, um, uh, drives changes in um, in uh, um, uh, sports, right, in esports, uh, so many areas that Intel is is highly involved in in security in cyber, which most people don't realize. So um, that that's one of the biggest challenges we've had at the beginning is people said, but how is it relevant to Intel? I'm a SaaS company. I'm a consumer company. Mm. And it's extremely relevant for Intel because these are all of these companies are eventually users of our customers. And many right. of them are trying to optimize what they do for um, a combination of hardware software that they may buy from Amazon or they may buy from Google or from Microsoft, but we are the underlying technology. And if we're not going to be connected as much as we can to the um, to the end users, which are which are these developers, these startups, then we will miss an opportunity to build better hardware, much better performance for a specific world that's that's out there today. So that's a, I think a big opportunity for us, and a big opportunity for all the startups that are engaging with us because they're going to get um, a lot of interest from these people that are trying to build a brave new world. Yeah, totally. And I guess it's been a tricky time until you, you've alluded to it a few times today, but like, you know, building a program, building an accelerator in a COVID world, how has that um, affected, um, you know, batch two, I believe? So Intel, yeah, the, yeah. how has that affected this cohort? Um, and how do you kind of foresee it affecting the cohorts? Uh, that are yet to come because you know we don't know how long this is going to last this pandemic you know people yeah. are getting this but you know science will tell us that nothing has changed since january so how how are you seeing this program still being a success um yeah. you know, so, what are the effects of that? yeah it's interesting because for years and again i've been doing this kind of work for you know 10 12 years and for years i was against virtual programs i said now can't do. You have to have, you have to look people in their eyes. You have to go through these intimate sessions where you, you, you build the relationship, you see each other, et cetera. So I, I originally said, look, it's, it's not going to work uh, virtually, but apparently you can teach old dogs, new tricks. And, and as uh, we got ready for our selection for batch one, so um, uh, end of uh, towards February, Time frame. We, we got ready for a selection for, for batch two. Sorry, uh, we realized the world has changed, and um, someone at Intel said, "Okay, Zach, just just decide to skip this this batch and go and do the next one in September, right after the summer." And I said, "No, we're gonna we're gonna change everything because everything is changing." And in two weeks, we uh, we bought cameras, we bought speakers, we moved all of the selection process, uh, final selection process to Zoom. So our final selection is about 60 people, uh, 30 VCs and serial entrepreneurs, and about 30 people, uh, top executives at Intel that we bring together. They, they're divided into five different rooms of 12, 13 people in a room, and they see um, startups. Uh, each startup gets to see two rooms. And at the end of the day, we pick the 10 companies that, that starts uh, to run with us. So we did all of that in Zoom. It worked perfectly well. It was actually better than physical. Uh, I think part of the reason it was better because you don't have the, um, 
people don't influence each other the same way they do physically. So you actually get them clean. They tell you what they think without being influenced by others. And they tend to write more feedback. So that was good. There were also some challenges with, with that, but, but that was the good side. Then we moved the whole program to Zoom. Uh, and the whole 12 weeks uh, were in Zoom. We didn't know how it's going to work out. We tend to work uh, with the startups for, they, um, it's almost two days a week, gross, gross two days a week that they spend with us, which is a lot of time. Uh, and we didn't know if they're going to show up for all the sessions. We had 100% participation. Uh, they could decide they don't show up. It's how we wow. know if the session is good or not. But yeah. it was 100 percent participation. We didn't have a dropout from uh, uh, unless someone um, you know uh, had um, you know one of the founders couldn't join or whatever. But but all the companies was uh, on all of the sessions. We even had sessions around mindfulness and you know all kind of things to get people a bit uh, the wor- worries uh, uh, get the um, them through these tough times and how do we help them through. Wow, that's a that's incredible. I mean, hundred percent attendance, and um, I guess what have you seen be like the the biggest struggles with startups in, in general? Like, what issues have you seen over the years with working with you know hundreds of different founders? Um, mm. So what, yeah, so I don't know if we have you know. For, so let's so we have uh, four hours now to talk. So great, you mean your top two? <laughs> So it's it looks a variety of, of, of things. There's there's one methodology we have, which is called CEO dilemma sessions, which is almost like peer therapy for for founders, and there are almost the same challenges that comes up no matter where you do it around the world. You could do this in in um, uh, India, China, Tel Aviv, London, uh, and similar issues comes by. So um, you always have co-founder challenges. Right, the role of the CEO, decision making. You would yeah. have challenges of people leaving the company, employees, because the founders are not uh, um, making decisions properly. It's not clear who runs what. So that's one one challenge we have. Uh, you have challenges with investors. So you come into your next funding round. There is an early investor that you need to somehow. Uh, um, take them out of your cap table because they'll prevent some of your investments in the future. So how do you deal with that situation? Um, we have um, issues relating to a lot of issues relating to sales, especially um, companies outside of the US, for example, they need to hire their first sales guy in the US or salesperson. Um, and it's a big challenge. Uh, it's, it's a culture challenge and it's, uh, it's expensive usually. Um, and there's a question of when do you do it? There's a question of do you hire seniors first or juniors first? Um, there are advisory challenges. Again, th- there's, there's a long list of issues that we help founders deal, th- deal with and deal uh, through it. They're even the basic stuff of just telling your story. How do you tell a, a story that would interest people? And it's, it's not that hard to build that and, and to work on that, but you usually don't have that. Um, methodology or, or you haven't done that before. So again, as I said, we can spend the next few hours with examples and, and, and different uh, issues. Um, I, I think what's, what's, what's super important as long as, um, as you're super, super passionate about what you do um, and you have the right people with you, um, you know, we can work and, and, and you're onto a big idea. We can work with everything else and 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 manage. 
yeah. I mean, over the last few weeks, I've I've been having you know various venture capitalists on the show um, talking about the effects of you know COVID on the fund, um, on deal sourcing, and all, all the the typical areas that VCs um, deal with on a day to day basis. That's been you know radically changed during this um, time. What do you foresee being like the biggest issues or the impact of COVID on startups and, and culture um, and business in general? Yeah, I think the biggest issue um, is being able to meet people, especially when you're early stage startup, you no longer go to conferences, you no longer have you know, an event, you go and, and meet people, either you're, uh, listen to your competitors, go and meet uh, potential customers. Um, you're even challenged meeting, meeting customers in your area because they're working from home. So, um, there's a big challenge of how do you get out of the building and meet with relevant people and learn. So you need to learn how to do that, how to get introductions and do it over zoom, which requires first and foremost, a network. So we help the companies a lot about how to develop their network and how to make sure to approach people that could help them with the right connections. Because again, these early customer calls, these uh, reference, reference calls, the ability to get uh, um, friendlies to speak to them is super critical. Um, and, and, you know, people know that it's a challenge now. So people are willing to help. You just need to ask. And you need to find people with the right network. So that's one of the challenges, get in front of customers, get in front of, of prospects and get this learning back. Uh, by the way, there's one advantage because you do a lot of these conversations on Zoom. You can record these conversations and learn a lot afterwards. What we see or usually with, with founders, they don't tend to listen well in these conversations. So they miss a lot of nuggets, a lot of gold nuggets, really, in these conversations. Mm. Someone may tell you that your product is not relevant for them, but he may tell you what he needs and what he's willing to pay for. And you may, may and if you listen properly, you may find there your pivot and the right thing to go and do. Um, you just many times don't listen and you don't hear that. When you're on Zoom conversations, you can then come back and analyze the call and have other people listen with you and help you analyze. So that's that's the the uh, getting customers. The second thing, which is critical, is is how do you get people to uh, um, try out what you're building? So again, if it's uh, if it's uh, uh, SaaS, it's a bit easier. Um, if you need to install something on premise, it's super hard these days. Um, if you need to, if there is security related, you need to get the customer side. This is super hard these days. So how do you really do everything uh, virtually? How do you? Uh, have uh, a package that you can install remotely without being on the site? Um, how can you get uh, uh, data from your prospects um, that is hashed and um, deals with PII and other, uh, like with personal information and other challenges and, and, and give them the right feeling about that where you do it remotely and when they send it over to you? These are things that people have to deal with today and used to be easier in the past. Um, I think there's room for a new kind of channel partners. If we told startups in the past, don't bring a channel partner too early because you're not going to learn enough. Uh, you're going to miss learning opportunities because you wouldn't know uh, what works and what doesn't work. What's the feedback people are giving you? Um, that's what we used to say. Now, I think it requires a new kind of channel partners, ones that are well-connected to potential customers. 
but also includes the early stage startup in the selling process. Uh, give them as much transparency and 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 knowledge uh, about the calls and what they've learned. So I think there's room for a new kind of, of of channel partners for startups that fits these days. So these are, I think, the major major challenges. You know, clearly uh, um, uh, pilots and POCs are slower to start. Um, there is a hiccup in investments. You see less and less startups starting now because it's harder to get early investments. So there are plenty of challenges. Not that they were not challenges before for yeah. startups. There are plenty of challenges, and I, I still believe that the ones with uh, with the, the right team and idea will prevail. Um, yeah. I would just recommend people to get help. There's lots of help, and there are a lot of people that are willing to help. Just don't be afraid for asking help, and and people will help you. Uh, get your story right. Tell it to as many people you can. I used to tell uh, founders, get on flights. You know, people, uh, uh, you, you have this germ. You have this virus that you have to spread around, get on a flight and spread it around. Well, apparently, first of all, uh, you know, it was used badly lately. And, and second, yeah, there, are no, there are no flights now. So, but you need to get to as many people and tell them your story. It's super critical. Um, so um, I think that's, that haven't changed. Yeah, no, I think that's, uh, I think that's great, great advice. Um, and I think you know, we're, we're seeing a lot of changes within the startup ecosystem. Uh, we're seeing, you know, like market corrections and you know people taking valuations at a lot lower. Um, I think it's a good thing and it's a bad thing, but I think you know the the, the best startups will prevail, like you say, and uh, and rise to the top. Yeah. Um, but again, you know, these are challenges that startups have faced historically. Anyway, it's just been exacerbated yeah. with. COVID. Yeah, um, I was there in the, I was there in two, 2001. I was there in 2008. We didn't have that, you know, uh, it was a, a big market uh, change and drop. Uh, we didn't have that phenomenon we have now that you can't fly and it's you know, a lot of things are harder. Uh, but, you know, the market came back and I, I think the market is definitely going to come back. It's a new reality. We have to get used to this new reality. But uh, I think everyone that's in tech right now, should feel very well that that we're going to get back. It's going to uh, we're going to be on the up and up, and and the world actually digital transformation is happening much faster than than before. If it used to be that education and health and uh, government, which are all super critical, were very very slow to adopt new technology, and we all knew that school needs to look differently, and health needs to look differently, and government needs to look differently, but they're not moving. Well, guess what? They have no choice right now. So it, with it, with this comes comes many many opportunities for for startups. Absolutely. Um, just before we wrap up, I did want to kind of jump back um, to the importance of, I guess, multinationals adopting a startup mindset. Now you've spoken about it with Microsoft and Intel, but I think in a general sense. You know, why do you think it's important? I mean, I think I have my own assumptions as to why I think it's important, but why do you think it's important that multinationals and organizations who are not necessarily have, you know, have access to accelerators or startups and don't have their feet on the ground? You know, why is it important that they do have this kind of startup mindset? And if they're not in a position to create an accelerator similar to like Intel or Microsoft, what can they do to kind of um, you know, make sure they find people like yourself, you know, like these entrepreneurs and how can they foster that kind of startup culture within 
um, they're, you know, multi-billion dollar organizations. Right. Well, first of all, I think there's no other choice. I think that organizations are not adapting themselves um, and, and um, working with these disruptors are just not going to survive. I think the changes are much, much faster than they've uh, ever been. And the days where you could uh, throw your hat 15 years ahead and, and uh, tell the world how an operating system will look like or how a CPU is going to look like no longer exists because the world is moving in different directions much, much faster. So if you're not going to have your, your ear on the ground, your finger on the ground and, and close to where disruption is happening, um, that's, uh, um, that's a mistake. And that's a really big business mistake. Uh, going to cost you your business. Um, I like a, a quote I got from, uh, so, uh, uh Chi Lu used to be the, um, uh, executive vice president of Microsoft, uh, uh, office in Bing, a small $40 billion business. And she told me once in, in one of our conversations said, Zach, look, corporate innovation is dead. And, and corporate innovation would come from two places. It would come from, uh, um, skunk work. So, um, you know, these small little teams that uh, have permission to do things differently inside the corporation and some places do have these teams. And the second place is going to come from startups. And he strongly believed in the work we do with startups. So I strongly believe in that. I don't think there's any corporation that can allow itself uh, not to work with these disruptors. It is hard. It's a different language. It's... uh, um, these large corporations tend to be um, what we call NIH, non-invented here syndrome. So if it's it's not built here, don't don't it's not interesting. It's it's not relevant. It's not good. So I think there's a lot of change happening in that world. I think Satya has done an amazing job at Microsoft with the growth mindset. Uh, yeah. Bob is doing an amazing job at Intel with with uh, his values journey inside uh, Intel with customer obsession and, and with fearless mindset and with bringing the whole Intel uh, uh, team into, into driving that change. Um, so I think it's critical. I think these, these um, executives understand that and drives a change in their company. And I love, love, love the passion they do that with. Um, and I couldn't be more lucky uh, than being in the forefront of, of these changes. So you know, companies like that, you know, a, a trillion dollar company and company of a hundred, hundreds of uh, billions of dollars, uh, willing to change, wanting to change. And I have a, a, my small part in, in this, in this big change. It's, it's amazing. I'm, I'm super lucky. Yeah. I mean, you, you've had an, an incredible career and, um, I think a lot of people are going to take a lot of value from this interview and the kind of like the path that you've created for yourself. Cause I think ultimately it has come out of, you know, being entrepreneurial and carving out this niche, um, which I think many others could and should adopt um, to help kind of ingrain this whole startup mindset and marrying it with uh, multinational so they can have this bridge between the two different worlds. Um, but before we wrap up, I always like to ask all of our guests these rapid fire questions, which I'm sure you're aware of. Um, so I'd love to uh, just jump right in and ask you a few questions. So the first one is who has, or what has been your biggest inspiration? Uh, what's been my biggest inspiration. So first of all, as I told you earlier, I think my parents surviving yeah. what they went through and being on the other hand, the most optimistic people, uh, that believe that nothing can stop them has been, uh, um, a guiding light for me in my life. 
that, that's I think. And, and, you know, there are many, almost every manager I had, I learned something from. I think looking at people like Satya and what he's done in Microsoft is, is unbelievable. You know, Bill and, and Steve and others have built an amazing company. The transformation that Satya has done with Microsoft is just unbelievable. And looking at others, Bob and others trying to do similarly with, with other places, it's really inspiring to see these people driving such companies and, and making a change and, and getting other people to change. That's awesome. Uh, favorite podcast? Um, so there's, uh, I love uh, um, the Reed Hoffman's podcast. Uh, um, uh, name of the podcast, just a second. Um, Yes. Amazing podcast. And in Israel, for the ones that listen here, there's a really, really great podcast called 30 Minutes or Less um, by Navot Volk and Aviv Frankel that talks with founders every week. Um, super strong. Uh, favorite blog? Um, so I... Favorite blog... I read TechCrunch mostly, uh, and um, yeah, I, I read TechCrunch. I read Forbes. Um, these are the the ones I usually read. Uh, favorite book? Sorry, favorite book? Paper book. Um, uh, there's a uh, the books of of uh, Noah Harari. Uh, are just amazing books about the history of the world and where we're heading. Uh, I think uh, all of his books are, are really great. Um, so um, pick any any of them. They're great. Okay. Uh, favorite Twitter account? <sighs> favorite Twitter account? Well, not... I will tell you what's the one that I don't like, which is uh, U.S. President's... Uh, <laughs> Twitter account. <laughs> it tends to be very, very influential, but uh, it's the one I don't like. Okay. Uh, what do you wish you could do that you currently can't do? Oh, I wish I could fly. <laughs> and oh, I yeah. can't do that. Not, not, I don't have my wings, and unfortunately I can't, uh, I can't uh, pay for any other, other wings uh, at this point. <laughs> I been been way too long and and um there's so many things that i need to do so yeah. i wish i could fly advice you would give to your 21 year old self um keep being yourself uh, uh surround your people with love you surround yourself with love um and and uh, be passionate about what you do and just uh, don't be afraid. Yeah, it's good. Um, if you had a hundred dollars in your favorite city, what would you spend it on, and where? Hundred dollar in my favorite city. What would I spend it on? Um, I would invite a couple of super interesting people for dinner. Hundred hundred bucks is not. It's not, may not be enough. But uh, uh, I would invite a couple of super interesting people for dinner and have a great conversation and learn from them. Okay. Uh, what's the one thing startups should ignore in the early days? Um, I think the strongest thing for, uh, for an entrepreneur is 
they they have a truth. They have an internal truth, and many people around them would tell them they're wrong. Um, so I think that they should ignore many of these people while taking a lot of the while taking the feedback and learning from that. But but most of the people around them will tell them they're wrong. Um, and and if they feel super super strongly about what they do, they may be right. So they should be careful about taking that uh, naysayers um, uh, feedback. Yeah, that's good. And and I guess what's your vision for Ignite? Um, you know, this is you know, like we said, batch two. Um, we've obviously done this model before with Microsoft. Uh, what's the vision you have for Ignite yeah. right now? So, um, so we're growing, we're going to go uh, to additional places around the world. Um, and, uh, um, my vision that Ignite is going to be that, uh, go to program in many startup ecosystems around the world and help create amazing companies. And, uh, uh while doing that will help drive, um, significant change inside Intel, um, and, and, um, drive that passion and nimbleness and uh, fearless approach and the ability to um, walk into uncharted uh, territories uh, and, and to bring along as many people I can from inside Intel. So I would want to see this as one of the main culture change vehicles inside Intel. That's awesome. Zach, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Um, if people want to get in contact with you or, or learn more about um, Ignite, where can they where can they find you? So on every digital uh, platform, they'll pick uh, you know Zach W on Twitter. Uh, I'm uh, you can find me on on LinkedIn, on on uh, um, you know Facebook, on all the platforms, and I I'm usually pretty good at responding to people. So awesome, Zach! Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. I'd just like to say another huge thank you to Zach and the team at Intel for coming on the show today and making it happen. I took a lot from that episode and I hope a lot of multinationals and executives who are listening to this episode listen to what Zach had to say about bridging that gap between multinationals and startups before it's too late. As always, guys, thank you so much for tuning in. And if you haven't already, please like and subscribe on the Apple Podcasting app and leave us a review anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. They honestly do go a long way. Until next time, keep grinding.